Good afternoon, Tri-States. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped, brought to you in part by DePaco and the R.W. Hafer Foundation. This is Ken in my regular Friday reader seat down here in Missouri, but reading to you from the Friday, March 1st edition of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. And now we'll begin with our first piece from the top of the fold on page one. County officials unlikely to reclaim stolen money. As an investigation into the alleged theft of more than $524,000 of public money transferred from Dubuque County to the city of Dyersville continues, Dubuque County Sheriff Joe Kennedy has tempered expectations. We don't want to leave the impression that we are going to be able to reclaim this money, Kennedy said Thursday. The odds of that happening are very small. Dubuque County officials announced Monday they are investigating the disappearance of $524,283.88 in Federal American Rescue Plan Act money the county attempted to send to the city of Dyersville. The funds were sent via an automated clearinghouse transaction from the county, but were believed to have been intercepted by a third party and never made it to the city of Dyersville. Dyersville officials recently reached out to the county inquiring about the status of the transfer, which tipped off the Dubuque County Sheriff's Department and County Auditor's Office that the money hadn't been received by the city. Dubuque County was allocated nearly $19 million from the American Rescue Plan Act, and the County Board of Supervisors designated most of those funds to local nonprofits and city governments that applied for funding. Among Dubuque County's ARPA allocations were $5 million to travel Dubuque as the county's contribution to the construction of a permanent 3,000-seat baseball stadium at the Field of Dreams movie site in Dyersville, $9,000 to Dyersville Area Historical Society for the Dyer Botsford Doll Museum, and 175000 for rural community food pantries acquisition of a new building in Dyersville. The Dubuque County Sheriff's Department is the lead investigative agency looking into the missing funds. That investigation thus far has been slow, which is not a surprise, Kennedy said. I think the people who were involved in this incident for all intents and purposes, were professional-type hackers, Kennedy said. You don't run into those types of people that often. When you do, it's a significant undertaking. Dubuque County Auditor Kevin Drugato indicated in a press release earlier this week that Dyersville's municipal email system had been compromised prior to the transfer. Investigators are subpoenaing bank records to determine the missing money's potential path. That process usually includes communicating with multiple banks and is a time-consuming effort. 
It depends on how many banks the money bounced through, Kennedy said. It's not going to be a quick turnaround. It depends on how many banks we need to deal with. We are working as quickly as we can and still being thorough. Kennedy said the investigation's scope is unparalleled in his experience. The Sheriff's Department is working with Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and could utilize FBI resources as well if necessary, Kennedy said. Dollar amount-wise, I can't think off the top of my head of having an investigation of this magnitude that is also this publicly followed, Kennedy said. We have investigated cases like this before and have to follow the money trail. The city of Dyersville has submitted an insurance claim to recoup the money, said Dyersville City Administrator Mick Michael, who added the lost money will not require the city to initiate a budget amendment to cover any shortfalls. It does not affect the city budget, I can tell you that, Michael said. Officials have been mum on other details of the lost money, connecting their reluctance to speak about it to the ongoing criminal investigation. Michael said the city of Dyersville is taking necessary precautions to make sure we are doing things necessary to protect the public interest and the public taxpayers' data and funds. Michael said, or declined rather, to answer whether the missing 524000 was an isolated incident. The money was sent between the government entities via automated clearinghouse wire transfer that Dragato said is common practice for governments. He declined to provide details about Dubuque County's processes and procedures in conducting ACH transfers, citing the ongoing investigation. Dragato added the county does not conduct test transfers with recipients prior to sending money. We are currently looking at our processes, so I am not comfortable going into that information at this time, he said. The county has policies and procedures that govern our claims processes. This is an active thing, and we have a couple of different jurisdictions investigating, and I'm cautious to answer as that is ongoing. Dubuque County also filed an insurance claim on the money following its alleged theft which Kennedy said will hopefully lead to covering the loss of the money. Both Michael and Drogato said they plan to keep the public abreast on the status of the investigation as it unfolds. I can assure you, once I am able to, there will be a full timeline and accounting that will be released, but I can't do too much at this point, Drogato said. I am told the investigation could take anywhere from six days to six months, but I am hoping we have some information we can release within the next couple of weeks. Our next front page piece. Man charged with murdering mother found incompetent. A psychological expert has found a Dubuque man accused of killing his mother incompetent to stand trial. The results of the competency evaluation for Tyler J. Daisy, 28, were presented Thursday in Iowa District Court of Dubuque County. 
Reversing their earlier expectations, defense attorneys reported at the hearing that a psychological evaluator found Daisy incompetent to stand trial on the first-degree murder and animal abuse charges he faces. It was determined that Mr. Daisy was not competent to stand trial and that particularly his lack of medication was concerning, said Joey Hoover, one of Daisy's defense attorneys. The expert was specifically concerned about his ability to make decisions in his own self-interest and also his ability to assist us in his defense. Daisy now will be evaluated by an expert with Iowa Medical and Classification Center to confirm the findings per an order from Iowa District Court Judge Thomas Bitter. If he again is found incompetent, Daisy will remain at the state-run center for treatment. The case stems from a January 18th incident in which Dubuque police responded to an Avoca Street address Tyler Daisy shared with his mother, Jennifer, after receiving a report of a deceased woman. Court documents state that upon arrival, police located Jennifer Daisy in her bedroom with numerous and significant lacerations to her face, neck, and head. Some of the fingers also had been severed from her hand, authorities said. Police applied for and executed a search warrant on the home and located a tactical tomahawk in a bathroom, documents state. The family dog also was found deceased in the living room with a significant head injury. Tyler Daisy was located in his bedroom shortly after police arrived, but was not overly responsive, documents state. He was transported to Mercy One Medical, Dubuque Medical Center, for evaluation and later was released into police custody. During an interview with police, Tyler Daisy said he owned a hatchet and kept it in a toolbox in his bedroom. He also claimed his mother had been practicing witchcraft, documents state. When police directly asked about Jennifer Daisy's injuries, however, Tyler Daisy invoked his right to remain silent. Daisy's attorneys later filed documents stating they intend to pursue a defense of insanity and diminished capacity in the case, citing Daisy's long history of mental health-related issues. The evaluation was completed in early February, and last week defense attorneys reported they expected the evaluator would find Daisy competent to stand trial before reversing course at Thursday's hearing. The expert was really struggling with this, Hoover told the court. When we met with the expert last, he was leaning toward the fact that Mr. Daisy would be competent, but I think after doing further review and really struggling with it, he determined otherwise. Daisy himself learned of the results of the competency evaluation Thursday in court after refusing to meet with his attorneys when they visited the Dubuque County Jail earlier this week to talk to him. He several times has stated his disinterest in pleading an insanity defense and has gone so far as to ask for new counsel in a handwritten motion to the court. I do not intend on using the affirmative defense of insanity and counsel has proven inadequate, the handwritten motion read. 
On Thursday, Daisy again expressed that he does not wish to pursue that defense tactic and that he disagreed with the results of the competency evaluation, stating he would gladly go to prison before he gets drugged out of his consciousness at a mental health care facility. Daisy also reiterated he does not wish to consult or continue to work with his current counsel. This is not one flew over the cuckoo's nest, Daisy said. I will not be going to a mental institution, and I will not be taking drugs. I am who I am, and I am who I choose to be. Bitter told Daisy he would not be sent to a mental institution, but instead would be going to the Iowa Medical and Classification Center for further evaluation. Any subsequent treatment plan would depend upon those findings, Bitter said. Daisy originally was set to stand trial April 16th at the Dubuque County Courthouse. If he is found incompetent by the state's examiner, the trial would be put on pause until he is fit to assist in his own defense. If the state evaluator finds he is competent, however, another hearing would be scheduled to further discuss the matter. First-degree murder is a Class A felony in Iowa and carries a mandatory life sentence in prison if the accused individual is found guilty. And our final front page piece is accompanied with a large picture of a gentleman pointing to uh, a a white dry erase board with um, some figures and things on it. And uh, some students, it looks like, uh, looking down perhaps at laptops. And beneath it, it says, Dubuque Senior High School teacher Dane Latham leads a government class on Thursday at the school. And the article is, Iowa Bill to Dictate Teaching of History? Question mark. Iowa House Republicans passed a bill this week that would reshape social studies education in the state restricting curricula to topics and ideologies that support majority members' lenses of history. The bill would require that detailed lists of selected documents, exclusively European and Western historical figures, and U.S. historical events that the bill's drafters see as positive, be taught to prescribed grade levels in Iowa's public and private schools. Throughout, the bill requires that these topics and events be taught in a way that emphasizes their positive aspects and that establishes that the curricula taught based on the bill's language be framed as full facts unable to be construed. The bill also requires that high school students pass a civics test based on the prescribed curricula to graduate and that public universities require students to have taken such a civics test, among other requirements. The bill passes along party lines, Republicans for and Democrats against. Republicans said that on the House floor during debate that the bill would ensure that Iowa youths learn a history that makes them proud of the United States. Iowa Representative Steve Bradley, Republican Cascade, spoke in favor of the bill. As somebody who likes to study history, I want my grandkids and my great-grandkids to know why my dad served in the Korean War, he said, before listing other veteran family members. 
This is the best bill that we've done so far. Democrats argued through statements and attempted amendments to the bill that it would force enormous hardship on already taxed teachers, that it was a slanted view of history, like propaganda, and criticized it being sourced not from Iowa, but from an out-of-state conservative organization. The portion of this bill that is appropriate is already being taught, said Iowa Representative Art Stead, Democrat Cedar Rapids, a retired school administrator and curriculum developer. It's just another attack on teachers. When they, not us, legislators, meet the end educational requirements to create curriculum. Broadly, the bill would require schools to focus social studies education on the history of the secular and religious ideals and institutions of liberty, including political, religious, economic, social, and cultural liberty in Western civilization, the United States, and the state of Iowa, which emphasizes the good, worthwhile, and best achievements of these ideals and institutions of liberty. And, quote, exemplary figures in Western civilization, the United States and the state of Iowa, who have fought to secure liberty, end quote. Those requirements would begin in first grade. The bill specifically would require 7th and 8th grade curricula to include a long list of topics beginning with the intellectual sources of the U.S.'s founding documents, comparing the U.S. Republican form of government with dictatorship, monarchy, oligarchy, theocracy, communism, and autocracy, history from the time of colonialism to the present day labeled the study of and devotion to the United States' exceptional and praiseworthy history. In the same grades, students must be taught the benefits of free enterprise, economics, and the failure of other economic systems. The bill would require five units of social studies in high school, including civics, not to include action civics. High school history would focus on aspects of U.S. culture based on Christian and European ideologies, which have to include a select list of historical figures chosen by the bill's drafters and would include a basic history of the fruitful and enduring attachment of Western civilization's free peoples to their nations and faiths. Kristen Wheland has taught social studies in Dubuque Community School District for 19 years. She is now the social studies educational support leader for grades 6 through 12. On a bulletin board above her desk at Dubuque Senior High School is a bumper sticker that reads, I have the courage to teach hard history. On Thursday, Wheeland told the Telegraph Herald in an interview that the bill would cause immediate problems for social studies departments and school districts across the state. This bill is contradicting our standards, which would already make it difficult right away, she said. That's going to create issues at every single level. There are already a lot of districts still working on implementing Iowa's social studies standards that came on a few years ago. We would need new curriculum materials, which would take a lot of money.
Wheeland also said the bill would reverse the benefits she has seen students gain from the new standards, which encourage critical thinking as well as learning about historical touchstones and contexts. They won't be able to grapple with history in the way we do right now, she said. Right now, they're driving into history in a way that I would have loved to when I was young. This potentially puts us into a situation where we're just teaching kids things they could Google. Wheeland also said the civics test requirement created another barrier to high school graduation and collegiate acceptance. She also said the curricula would likely bar Iowa's advanced placement credits from being accepted by universities in other states. Western Dubuque Community School District leaders did not comment by deadline Thursday. In an interview Thursday, Loras College political science professor Chris Budzitz said it was rare for the Iowa legislature to pass such detailed curricula. Traditionally, it has been uncommon to see such a prescriptive approach, he said. You're talking oftentimes previously about generalized standards, nothing like this. I think it's symptomatic of the broader trends happening not just in Iowa, but other Republican-controlled states and the results of organized interest groups. It also fits with general trends around criticism of teachers and of increasing scrutiny on the public school system. After passing the House, the bill went to the Iowa Senate, where it was referred to the Senate Education Committee on Thursday. Iowa Senator Chris Coynoyer, Republican LeClaire, is the only area lawmaker serving on that committee. Now we turn to our Dubuque and Tri-State news, bits and pieces here and there. And our first one is reading program to feature the personal librarian. A program encouraging Dubuque County residents to read a common book will return for a second year. Nine local libraries are partnering on the second annual Dubuque County Reads program. A series of community conversations will be held between March 27th to April 13th to discuss the book, The Personal Librarian, by Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray. It really is about building community and having a way to explore other experiences in life and different perspectives, and to be able to have that community-wide conversation through books and literature, said Sarah Smith adult services librarian at Carnegie Stout Public Library. It's amazing how those can be windows into other worlds. Smith said library staff found last year's Dubuque County Reads program to be a great success with a higher than anticipated turnout. Some of the college campuses had some great engagement where various classes had students read last year's book and attend some of the discussions, she said. With Carnegie Stout's book club, we tend to see familiar faces. So to have college students join in with some of the regular participants and have some of those different voices in the same room was awesome. She said the program added new libraries this year, including Divine Word College Library, Cascade, Iowa Public Library, and Wartburg Seminary Library. Also participating are Carnegie Stout, Clark University Library, Dubuque County Library District, James Kennedy Public Library in Dyersville, 
Lawrence College Library, and University of Dubuque Library. This year's title tells the story of J.P. Morgan's personal librarian, Bella da Costa Green, a black American woman who hid her identity and passed as a white woman in order to protect her family and leave a lasting legacy that enriched our nation, a press release states. The story of Green was featured in a play last year at First Baptist Church's annual Walk Through Black History event. We loved that local connection, Smith said. As part of this year's program, we're going to be working with the Multicultural Family Center to show the recording of that play and have a Q&A with playwright Peggy Jackson and several of the performers from that production. Dubuque County Library District Volunteer Coordinator Lydia Sigworth said she was inspired by the impact of last year's program, and that recent political discourse about libraries makes this a perfect time to continue the program. The whole idea behind Dubuque County Reads is to help people think about different perspectives and experiences than their own with a book that is relevant but also enlightening, she said. I'm excited to bring the county together with this, since that is what libraries actually do, bring people together. Copies of The Personal Librarian are available at local libraries and at River Lights Bookstore in Dubuque, where they are available for a 25% discount. Now we'll take a brief turn to our opinion page and our view the opinions that are expressed by the Dubuque Telegraph Herald editorial board. And we have our Friday quick takes with three smiley faces. Our first one, officials working hard to draw daily air service back to Dubuque. It was encouraging to hear at a Dubuque Area Chamber of Commerce event last week that local officials have continued to press this issue of bringing daily air service back to Dubuque Regional Airport and are, in fact, making some headway. At the Chamber's Air Service Forum, Matt Skinner, an air service consultant hired by the Dubuque Airport, said recent conversations between local representatives and regional air carriers have shown promise. That's great news, because few things should be a higher priority in Dubuque than landing daily air service. Whether it's attracting young people to the area or retaining retirees ready to do more traveling, having a connection to a major hub for access to flights is critical to growing and maintaining population and building economic momentum. Meanwhile, Dubuque did rack up more than 19,000 enplanements last year, thanks in large part to Avilo Airlines, which launched twice weekly flights between Dubuque and Orlando, Florida last year, and briefly added flights to and from Las Vegas. While some local citizens grumbled about the $1 million of taxpayer money that went to Avilo through a minimum revenue guarantee agreement, it was those very emplainments that allowed the city to draw down $1 million in federal funding, making the investment essentially a wash. While there's much more work to be done, it's great to see local leaders working together to make daily air service a reality. Our second smiley face, 
across the tri-state area in ways large and small, local nonprofits will have a little more breathing room in their budgets this year. That's because Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque and its affiliates are dispersing some $4.8 million in grants this month from the hundreds of endowment funds it hosts for area nonprofits. That adds up to the biggest payout from the funds in the foundation's history. What it means at organizations always looking for an extra dollar is money for light bulbs and food and equipment and all the things it takes to run a program in service to the community. That's where a community foundation comes in to provide that kind of support. At Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque, the majority of its assets are endowed, meaning they are in permanent investment funds that pay out a portion each year. As of December 31, 2023, the foundation had $150 million in assets, 77% of which was endowed. Because the money is invested, it continues to grow over time, with the goal to increase payouts and provide consistent funding forever. There's a reason organizations such as this are called foundations. They provide a base and a structure on which nonprofits can build and grow. Cheers to Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque on its continued efforts to support and bolster local nonprofits. And our third smiley face, the tri-state area's spring-like weather might have local residents thinking about planting trees. And now there's a chance to get some trees at a discounted price. The Iowa Department of Natural Resources is offering trees for a discounted rate for Alliant Energy customers with a local pickup date scheduled in May. Alliant customers can purchase up to two trees for $25 each with a mix of hardwood, low-growing ornamental, and evergreen species available. A pickup date is scheduled for, for 9 to 11 a.m. May 11th at Swiss Valley Park. Residents can submit an order form to reserve their trees at tinyurl.com slash m numeral 4 W-D-U-K numeral 5-V. I think that's a great idea. Get out there and get some trees. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped, brought to you in part by DuPaco and the R.W. Hafer Foundation. And this is Ken, and I am reading from the Friday, March 1st edition of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. And we now turn to today's obituaries. James H. Rowling, St. Anitis. James H. Jim Rowling, 84, of St. Anitis, passed away peacefully on February 27th at home, surrounded by his loving family. Friends and family may visit from 1 to 5 p.m. Sunday, March 3rd, at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road in Dubuque. A family wake service will be held before the visitation at 12.45 p.m. Friends may also visit on Monday, March 4th from 9 a.m. until the 10 a.m. Mass at St. Anita's Catholic Church with Father Bob Gross officiating. 
burial will be in St. Anita's Catholic Cemetery with military honors by the Iowa Army National Guard. Jim was born to Alphonse and Alberta Welter Rowling at his family's home in New Vienna, Iowa, on July 12, 1939. He was united in marriage to the love of his life, Ruth Gropstick, on September 2, 1961, at St. Catherine's Catholic Church. He worked for Brumeyer Auto Body as a body man for 34 years. Jim also served our country as an Army Reservist for five years. He was a social man who never met a stranger and he saw the importance in serving his community. He was a charter member and leader of the Key West Sportsman's Club, longtime member of St. Catherine's St. Donatus Parishes, an inaugural State of Iowa Hunter Safety Instructor, and was mayor council member of St. Donatus for many years. He loved fishing, playing cards, especially euchre, riding his lovingly restored John Deere B, and most of all, spending time with his family. Jim's legacy will live on in his proudest accomplishments, his family. In lieu of flowers, a James H. Rowling Memorial Fund will be established. Daniel L. Collins, Hazel Green. Daniel L. Collins, 41, of Hazel Green, passed away Monday, February 26th. A celebration of life gathering will be held from 4 to 8 p.m. Sunday, March 3rd, at Daniel's Lounge in Keeler, Wisconsin. A private family burial will be held at a later date. The Howden Shield Funeral Home and Crematory in Cuba City is serving the family. Dan was born April 11, 1982, to John Moyer and Terry Collins Niemeyer in Dubuque. He was a graduate of Southwestern High School in 2000. He worked for many years on the Kenneker family farm and later for the Grant County Highway Department. He married Brittany A. Kaiser July 22, 2006, in East Dubuque. Dan enjoyed hunting, fishing, the outdoors, farming, spending time with his kids, nieces, and nephews, picking on people, snow plowing, but most of all, he enjoyed time spent with his family and friends. He will be sadly missed by all who knew and loved him. Online condolences may be left for the family at www.howdenshieldfuneralhome.com. Memorial Fund. Daniel L. Collins Memorial Fund has been established in lieu of plants and flowers. Gregory Bradley. Gregory Bradley, 74, of Dubuque, died Wednesday, February 28th. Services will take place at 1 p.m. Sunday, March 3rd, at the Alliant Energy Amphitheater at East Commercial Street, followed by a celebration of life until 4 p.m. at Stone Cliff Winery, at 600 Star Brewery Company, Brewery, Brewery Drive, Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, is assisting the family. And we have no births on the page, so no babies born yesterday. I wonder if uh, any were born this week. But uh, well, now we'll turn to some of our news in brief, which is also on this page. Dubuque Municipal Golf Course to open today. The city of Dubuque's golf course is set to open today. Bunker Hill Golf Course, 2200 Bunker Hill Road, will open at noon today. 
Tee times will not be scheduled for the first week of the season, and golfers will play on a first-come, first-served basis, a press release states. All 18 holes will be available for walking and golf carts, according to the release. Scheduled tee times will be available starting Saturday, March 9th, and can be reserved by calling 563-589-4261. More information about the course and season passes are available online at cityofdubuque.org slash 530 slash Bunker Hill Golf Course. New coffee bar opens inside Kennedy Mall. A new coffee bar has opened at Kennedy Mall. World Earth Coffee recently opened north of the Dubuque Mall's center court. The beverage bar will be open 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. daily, according to an online announcement. World Earth Coffee will offer a variety of hot and iced drinks, including coffee, smoothies, and tea. There also will be an assortment of breakfast and lunch offerings, as well as a variety of snacks. The coffee shop is owned by the same company that runs World Earth Minerals, which opened last month at Kennedy Mall. That store sells a variety of gems, crystals, and other geological collections and is located across the hall from the coffee shop. Dubuque event to celebrate soul food. A free Dubuque event will celebrate the history and culture of soul food. Soul Food Celebration will be held from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. March 9th at the Multicultural Family Center, 1157 Central Avenue, according to an online announcement. The program includes sampling food and a cooking demonstration with Franny's Barbecue. Registration is required and can be made online at mfcdbq.org or by calling 563 562-3681. We have one more piece of uh, Dubuque news. It looks very interesting. Um, We first have these two pictures running across part of the page. It's a long shot of a huge number of people gathered around a dining table. And we're looking at dozens, from the tiniest to the oldest. And beneath it, the caption reads, Anne Reinert appears with most of her children, their spouses and grandchildren during a recent Sunday supper gathering for which she prepared three-layered lasagna. And another little inset picture shows her doing just that. A woman, an older woman, bent over trays of, I can tell from here, lasagna that she's working on. And the article is Supper Sundays, Strengthen Ties for Family. Anne Reinert, 80, has been preparing a Sunday meal for her family for the past 20 years. Not a big deal until you realize that anywhere from 25 to 40 hungry relatives show up for the weekly Sunday supper. And Reinert wouldn't have it any other way. On this day, she is preparing three-layered lasagna. I usually start cooking after I get home after church, about 11.15, depending on what I'm going to make. Sometimes I start a little ahead of time, before Mass. She baked the bread and made a salad before starting the lasagna. This is fun, she chirped. I like making lasagna. Reinert said sometimes she makes teeter-tot casseroles or shepherd's pie. Mom never made this kind of thing because it wasn't something we German people had, she said of the lasagna. I am German. I am so German. Daddy used to say we are so German. The sauerkraut was coming out of our ears. 
Family is clearly important to Reinert. The oldest of nine children, she came from a big family. Then she and her husband Alfred, who died in 2014, had 11 children. Reinert cares deeply about children. When you watch her working as a paraprofessional with children at Dyersville Elementary or see her grandchildren fall deep into her arms for bear hugs, you can see the unabashed love. I love it, she said of her work beaming. After working 20 years as a paraprofessional at Hennessy Catholic School in Petersburg and 11 years at Dyersville Elementary, Reinert recently announced her retirement from Dyersville Elementary, but will finish out the school year. Feeding her extended family, which is as large as a football team, requires a lot of preparation, time, and expense. For the lasagna supper, Reinert said she used 10 pounds of hamburger and two big jars of Prego sauce, among the other ingredients such as cottage cheese. She wouldn't say how much she spent, but agreed it's one of the more expensive dishes because of the various ingredients. Most of the time, I pay for it, she said modestly of the food. They are so good to me, it's worth it. For Super Bowl Sunday, she made stew. I love football, she said. Of my 11 kids, four of them played for Beckman. There was a time when she lived and worked in Petersburg. I used to make omelets and the kids would come over and get together after church, she said. But as the family grew, more room was needed to gather. The suppers now alternate between two of her daughter's homes, Emily and Mike Bogey's property in Farley, which has an elaborate meeting structure behind the house, and Vicki and Loris Lansing's spacious home on 12th Avenue Southeast in Dyersville. Vicki hosts the Sunday supper most of the time, Reinhardt said. The reason she built the house so big was because she wanted to host these suppers. We always ask if we could bring our own food, but she always says no, Vicki Lansing said. I am just doing it for my kids. I love my kids. It's just such a fun thing. And they appreciate it, Reinhardt said. Once I get it there, I don't do much. They eat it, they clean it up, they wash the dishes. As son-in-law Loris Lansing said, the food is the glue that holds the family together. When not at school or preparing food, Reinhardt is busy sewing quilts for her grandchildren. She has made a quilt for each of her 25 grandchildren and is finishing 26 and 27 for the two on their way. Joyful and content, Reinhardt said, I love my life. The kids say, what do you want? I got everything I need. I am so blessed and every one of my kids is doing well. I hope I can stick around for a while, she said with a smile. And we have a little bit of uh, more of news in brief. Dubuque Community School District officials name next Irving principal. Renee Wagner will serve as Irving's principal starting in the 2024-25 school year, pending approval by the school board at its meeting in March, a press release states. Wagner will succeed Susan Meehan, who recently was named administrator of the district's new Seedlings Prescott a preschool center, slated to open this fall. The release states that Wagner currently is an instructional coach at Drexler Middle School in Farley, a role she has held since 2020. She previously worked as an instructional coach at Western Dubuque High School from 2014 to 2020 and was a teacher at Drexler from 2010 to 2014. She also previously served as a Title I reading teacher at Cascade Elementary School. 
Brene brings a student's first philosophy that is guided by her strong track record of building positive relationships and her expertise in proven instructional practices, Dubuque Community Schools Superintendent Amy Hawkins said in the release. That, combined with her positive attitude and excitement for learning, makes her the right fit to lead Irving into the future. Our next piece, Police. Three hurt, one seriously, in wreck. Police said three people were injured, one seriously, in a one-vehicle rollover crash in Dubuque. Shawanda D. Mosby, 31, and Davida M. Moore, 37, both of Dubuque, were transported by ambulance to Unity Point Health Finley Hospital, and Bryant N. Terrell, 39, of Dubuque, was transported by ambulance to Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center for treatment of their injuries, according to Dubuque Police. Mosby suffered a suspected broken neck. Police said that all three people were passengers in a vehicle driven by Jantez A. Thomas, 40, of Dubuque. Thomas was traveling south on the northwest arterial at a high rate of speed at about 12.50 a.m. Thursday when the vehicle drove off the road and entered a ditch. The vehicle began rolling over, striking an Alliant Energy power box, causing $5,000 worth of damage, and a CenturyLink phone box, causing $2,000 worth of damage. The vehicle came to rest upside down in the 2500 block of Northwest Arterial. Thomas was not identified as the driver until after the crash. Dubuque Police Department Lieutenant Luke Bach said a warrant has been sought to charge Thomas with driving while barred, failure to provide proof of insurance, and failure to maintain control. Area National Merit Finalists Named Nine local Iowa high school seniors have been named finalists in the 2023 National Merit Scholarship Program. Nathan Chappelle, Hempstead, Hannah Davidson, Hempstead, Charlie Driscoll, Hempstead, Dawson Fish, Hempstead, Caitlin Kono, Sr., Andrew McGuire, Platteville, Ryan Mullen, Dubuque Online, Allison Munshower, Wallert. Nicholas Rojo, Platteville High School students entered the program as juniors in high school by taking the 2022 preliminary SAT NMSAQT test. 16,000 students nationwide were selected as semifinalists, 15,000 were named finalists, and 7,000 were named National Merit Scholarships, and they'll be awarded either through the National Merit Scholarship Corporation or colleges and universities. Nice job. Area candidates vie for contested seats. Joe Davis County, Illinois voters later this month will cast their ballots in the state's general primary election. The March 19 election will nominate candidates for federal, state, and county-level offices to be elected in November. In addition to several referendums that will be on the ballot, 14 of the 17 Joe Davies County board seats will be up for election. However, only two of those seats are contested races in this month's primary, Districts 13 and 15. The Telegraph-Herald spoke with the candidates in each race about their backgrounds and priorities if elected. In District 13, Donald Berlage, Republican, 62. He's a farmer in Elizabeth, married with three adult kids. His relevant experience, member of Swiss Valley Farms and Prairie Farms Corporate Boards for about 15 years until 2019. He said his diverse background in farming and agriculture will serve him well on the board. 
If elected, he would focus on ways to attract new businesses to the county and prioritize keeping property taxes low. He has experience working with finance and numbers, particularly in his stints on the corporate boards for Swiss Valley Farms and Prairie Farms. Michael Dittmar, Republican, age 48. In, in, he's in Elizabeth, social studies teacher at River Ridge High School. He's mar- married and with four children. Uh, president of Village of Elizabeth since 2008. Joe Davies County Republican Chair, past president and current member of Elizabeth Area Chamber of Commerce. He feels the county board could use some fresh new ideas, particularly when it comes to economic development. As a teacher, eight out of every 10 of my students say they can't wait to leave this area because there's nothing here. He supports allowing ATVs and UTVs to operate on county roads. ATVs, UTVs, and golf carts are currently prohibited. He also wants to create incentive programs similar to tax increment financing districts to attract new businesses. District 15, two-year unexpired term. Jacob Ambrosia, Republican, age 37, lives in Elizabeth, sales representative of Sloan Implement, married with three children, first time running for elected office, currently serves as vice president of Elizabeth Community Fair Board. If elected, he would prioritize fiscal responsibility in government and would work to keep the county's agricultural industry as a focus. Tina Brandel, Republican incumbent, age 53, resident of Elizabeth, retired after 25 years in dispatch, corrections, and communications for the county sheriff, married with two adult children and one grandchild, appointed to the county board in December 2022 to fill a vacancy since her appointment. She has enjoyed working with her fellow members and serving uh, as a liaison between the board and the Joe Davies County Local Emergency Planning Committee. I would hold the county fiscally responsible as far as what money is spent. A third race in District 7 also has multiple candidates who filed. However, as the candidates are from different parties, both will advance to the general election. District 7, John Creighton, Republican incumbent. Rural Stockton, recently retired farmer, married with three adult children. Served three stints on the county board over the past three decades for about 15 years total. He touted his years of experience helping the county develop budgets while serving on the board. We are subject to numerous state and federal mandates that dictate a large percentage of our spending, but trying to keep property taxes at a tolerable level for the county residents is an overriding concern of mine. Don Hill, Democrat, 69, from Lena, retired tire builder with Titan Tire Corporation. Married, five adult children, four grandchildren. Served on the county board from 2010 to 2012 and 2016 to 2022. Hill served as chair of the county board for several years. He said he works well with fellow board members of both parties and has worked a wide variety of jobs over a lifetime in Joe Davies. If elected, he would prioritize countywide services for older adults, along with increased access to public transportation for rural residents. A lot of the roads in the county and a lot of bridges need to be looked at, and infrastructure is important to him. If tourists come, we don't want them getting stuck on the roads or having to turn around because a bridge is out. Now, let's turn to our weekend buzz. All the things to do this weekend in the tri-states. Tim Cavanaugh at the Mississippi Moon Bar today. 
Mississippi Moon Bar, 301 Bell Street. 8 p.m., nationally touring Bob and Tom regular, Tim Cavanaugh's show combines comedy with music and audience participation. Must be 21 or older to attend. Admission is $10 to $15 per person. Tickets and information, tinyurl.com slash Bar. Antique Quilt Show. Saturday, Grant County History Museum, Lancaster. 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., Lancaster quilters will give demonstrations throughout the day, and historian Allison Rainboth will provide presentations at 10 a.m. and 1 p.m. on Restoration-Era Quilting and Dating Antique Quilts, respectively. Raffles and informal quilt assessments will be offered. A soup, salad, sandwich lunch will be available for purchase at the nearby meat shop. Grant County Historical Society member admission, $5 per person. General admission, $10 per person. More information, call 608-642-3212. Dyersville Fire Department Community Dance, Saturday, Commercial Club Park Pavilion, Dyersville. 8 p.m. to midnight. Doors open at 7.30. Support the Dyersville Fire Department by dancing the night away to music by the 308 Band. Pizza will be provided by Happy Joe's and drinks will be available for purchase. Admission is free, but donations are welcome upon entry. You may call 563-543-9882 for additional information. Dave Matthews, Tribute Band, Saturday, Mississippi Moon Bar, 301 Bell Street, 8 p.m. The five-piece touring group prides itself on authentically and authenticity, excuse me, and high energy. Must be 21 or older to attend. Admission is free. More information about this event, tinyurl.com slash dmtributemoonbar. That was dmtributemoonbar. Bernard Fireman's Breakfast, Sunday, St. Patrick's, Gary Owen Parish Hall, 2885746th Avenue, Butler Township, Iowa. 7.30 to 11.30 a.m. Breakfast fare will include ham, sausage, scrambled eggs, hash browns, and cinnamon rolls with coffee, juice, and milk to drink. That's a nice menu. Admission, $10 for adults, $5 for ages 5 to 12, Free for the little four-year-olds and under. Donations are welcome. I suppose that's in addition to the cost. Additional information about this event can be found at tinyurl.com slash Bernard FR Breakfast 2024. That is it, everyone. You have been listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped, brought to you in part by DuPaco and the R.W. Hafer Foundation. This has been Ken in my regular Friday reading seat, and I've been reading to you from the Friday, March 1st edition of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. And I tell you every week, There's more than just finding the newspaper out there Monday through Friday. That's a big part of what we all do for across the state. But tune in to other wonderful programs on IRIS. There's all kinds of stuff you can find out there. So dig in and maybe on a cold day, if we get some more of them, or rainy day or whatever, you can just snuggle in and listen to a nice program on IRIS. Until next week, 